Welcome to Reliving My Youth, the show where we look back at pop culture from the 70s, 80s, and 90s. My name is Noel Fogelman. This week's guest is Clark Datchler, the lead singer of the band Johnny H. Jazz, which had one of the biggest hits in the late 80s, Shattered Dreams. We talk about how the band came up with its name, why Clark left the band at the height of its success, only to return about 20 years later. We talk about what Clark did during that time span, and Clark had really, really rare form of cancer and almost died. We talk about that. And just to refresh you guys' memories, here is Shattered Dreams.
And helping me relive my youth today is Clark Dashler. Clark, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. Yeah. So let's go back way beginning. Your father was a uh, a big mu- musician, right? He was in a couple bands, very successful. Did that influence you in becoming uh, a full-time musician? Yeah, absolutely. Um, it's interesting because my dad obviously came from a, a, the era when jazz was, was dominant, so the 40s and 50s. And um, actually one of his bands was the first British band to have a number one hit single on the UK chart. Uh, the UK chart was started in 1952. In 1953, they were number one. Before then, for the few months before then, they'd been US artists. So um, there's always been kind of a bit of a focus on the chart for me, actually, because of that, that heritage. Um, but, you know, it, the, the jazz influence was profound for me because I grew up listening to uh, you know, Nat King Cole, Mel Torme, Count Basie, um, Ella Fitzgerald, and, and um, despite the name of the band that I eventually, you know, became part of, um, jazz played a very significant part in my, uh, my, my musical evolution. Now, you mentioned the name of the band. Uh, how did that originate? <laughs> my colleague in the band, Mike Nacito, who is actually from upstate New York originally. Oh, okay. Um, yeah, Mike... Um, Mike's brother-in-law is Johnny, and uh, Johnny is a real person who lives in Cambridge in the UK. Uh, apparently, they were someone was playing a, a Dave Brubeck record in uh, in Johnny's home, and he walked over to the record player, as we had back then, of course, um, tore the record off the record player and broke it in two over his knee. And someone <laughs> said, um, "Oh, Johnny hates jazz." And Mike, for some reason, remembered that phrase. So when it came time to name the band, he suddenly came out with this bizarre phrase, and, and we heard the story behind it. And the weird thing was was that, you know, I, out of all of us, had the closest connection to jazz historically. So that was a difficult moment when I had to tell my dad that I was part of a band called Johnny Hates Jazz. At least it wasn't Clark Hates Jazz. Right. So there you go. Exactly. Did, uh, did he get a, find some humor in that? No, well, it took about a month for him to find any humor in it. The, right. the first month, it was absolute silence. <laughs> That's pretty funny. But before before you were in the band, you uh, you were a solo artist as well, correct? I was a solo artist, yes. Um, I Well, I put my first single out when I was 17, um, which these days sounds nothing. You put a single out and you can do that on the internet and anyone can do it and any auntie, anyone's auntie can do it and anyone's dog can do it. But back then it was incredibly difficult to release a record as, as you'll well remember, I'm sure Noel, that you, you had to go through a record label. Right. They were the guardians, um, of, of, you know, popular music reaching, reaching people. Um, so it was a very difficult process. Only a few people could, could release records. So I was very fortunate that, I was able to do that when I was 17, and it and it kind of went from there. I got involved with uh, one of the members of Visage, um, oh, yeah. who were famous for the record Fate to Grey, right. and um, and got into electronic music. And um, you know, one thing led to another, and eventually, years later, I I, I became part of Johnny Hayes Jazz. But actually, I was a you know more or less a solo artist for uh, for many years before then. Now, was that difficult? Because I, I know you left the bands, 
shortly after you know the album came out. Was it difficult going from being a solo artist to being in a band? Yeah, I think I think when I was younger, I always found it hard to be in bands. So if I joined, I generally tended to leave quite quickly. Um, in, you know, now I'm um, older and slightly wiser. I like mm-hmm. to think um, I see life differently, and I see the collaborative process of making records as part of a band differently. I enjoy it a lot more now. Uh, even so, as a writer. I tend to write on my own still. I do. I have done some collaborations recently, uh, namely with uh, Mike Rutherford for the last Mike and Mechanics album, uh, which was great fun, a really good experience. But I generally kind of resort to writing on my own. But but my colleague Mike is a really great person to work with, and, and um, you know I I very much enjoy uh, us bringing our different strengths to the table, which I I can see that that's what makes and made Johnny Hates Jazz strong in the first place. I think when I was younger, I was um, I was uh, too focused on working on my own to, uh, to see that. Right. I'll get to Mike Mechanics in a little bit. I was very excited to hear that you uh, wrote you know, the album with Mike Rutherford. But when Johnny Hates Jazz released Turn Back the Clock, it was a massive hit. Um, Shattered Dreams, I mean, it's 30 years old uh, this year. Are you, does it feel like it's 30 years old? Uh, yeah, in a way it does actually. And, but that's only because I've become more and more aware of it as we, as right. we, as we go through the year. Uh, and, uh, you know, we're doing a, a UK tour in December to celebrate the 30th anniversary of the release of the Turn Back the Clock album. I think the thing is, is that, you know, obviously, Noel, for people in the States, there was only ever Shattered Dreams because I left right after that single was a hit over there for the rest of the world shattered dreams had come out a year before and we had other hits and the album in and of itself turn back the clock album was a number one um triple platinum album um so it's there's a there's a quite a strong history here um the history in the states is very much revolving around one particular record um but you know, the, 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 the flip side of all that, of the 30-year thing, is that it's Shattered Dreams, in particular, still gets an enormous amount of airplay. It's still incredibly popular. And uh, that is something that has surprised me. In that sense, when you hear it on radio or when we perform it at a festival or one of our own shows, it ceases to become a 30-year-old record. It's a present record. It's there alongside records that have come out very recently so um in that sense it 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 doesn't feel like 30 years at all it feels like a a fairly fresh uh process right and that entire album not only shattered dreams totally holds up i remember having the uh the cassette i can totally date myself of you know turn back the clock when you know when it first came out and even though shattered dreams was just the only u.s release all the other songs were fantastic um especially i don't want to be a hero which, I mean, kind of, I mean, obviously it's an anti-war song, and music now doesn't seem to have, like, political statements in their songs. It always seems just to be, like, you know, kind of, like, irrelevant, fun dance songs. Would you agree? Well, yes, in terms of chart music, I'd agree. Right. Um, And I'm very critical and openly critical of what's happened to music when you look at how the charts reflect what is 
available. I don't think it reflects what people are making, though. I think because there are so many people out there making music, and as I said earlier, who have the ability to release music, there are people out there who are saying important things, saying beautiful things, saying challenging things. They're not. Forget them getting into the chart, though. It ain't going to happen. The difference is in the 80s, 70s, 60s, music with a conscience was in the chart. It was part and parcel of, of, of having a hit. So I Don't Want to Be a Hero, which was an anti-war song um, and, and was a big hit uh, in many places around the world. It wasn't unusual to have a hit with such a statement. Um, I, what was unusual is to have a period of time when there weren't any records in the chart which had anything to say for themselves. And unfortunately, that's the state of the charts now. Um, I find that an incredibly sad thing. I think music has lost the influence that it used to have um, on society. Um, it's now, I think, being reduced to a form of entertainment. And we never, ever thought of music back in the day as being a form of entertainment. It was always a separate thing. No, entertainment was for people who were in the theatre or in the movies or whatever. Music was its own thing. But that's not what's happened now. So I feel for the younger musicians who do want to say something and are trying to say something because the industry doesn't want to know. It's the industry that's at fault, not the, not the people who are making the music. Right, and the industry has changed not only you know with that as well as like releasing music digitally and Spotify and all that. What are your thoughts on how the music industry has gone that way? Well, it, 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 I mean, it's very hard to grasp how it's changed so quickly. I don't think there's been another industry that's been affected so directly as music uh, by the digital revolution. But I think in some ways that the way we have to see it is that we're, we're an, in an in-between phase. There was a structure that existed for several decades that worked very well. Um, and then it fell apart with the advent of the internet and piracy and, and how the industry responded to that. And um, the new structure has yet to be built. Everyone's still kind of floundering, thinking that, you know, musicians especially, thinking, well, how do we survive financially? How do we survive in, in this day and age? No one, it seems, wants to actually purchase music. Streaming music is not an answer. You, I can tell you that, you know, um, the likes of Ed Sheeran made very little from streaming, you know, and these people are selling you right. know huge amounts of music purportedly. So it, it's a very worrying time because I think the general public need to understand that this is not a question of whether, whether a musician can afford to buy a particular Porsche or not. This is about whether they can put the food on the table. I mean, no one's making anything except when they play live. So the structure of how we get recorded music to people has yet to be created the new structure i think it will be but i think we're just not sure how that's going to happen yet spotify and apple music and the like are could be part of that but they've got to change their business model so musicians are are um you know uh, reciprocated fairly right i mean i guess like that way, it's kind of a double-edged sword where your your music's out there and more people are discovering it, but you don't benefit from it. Yeah, and the thing is that the the irony of all this, Noel, is that it, touching on this subject makes it sound like that all a musician cares about is money. It's not true. What we want to do is to be able to, you know, at least break even, at least kind of survive, at least do well enough so that we can keep doing what we love doing. That's the most important thing. 
Um, but I think that uh, the, the, the attention and the power has got concentrated in very few select artists that are, you know, lock, stock and barrel part and parcel of the major labels. And I think that that's then the appearances that musicians are still doing incredibly well. I can tell you that that's just not the case for most musicians. Right. And, and people you know, tend to forget that, you know, it is your job, too. And it's not just, you know, performing to entertain people. It's it's also a job. It is a job. It's it's a job how and, and musicians structure their lives around that. Um, but I am hopeful that a, 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 a new paradigm is going to develop and we'll reach a, a new situation where uh, it will be beneficial to everyone and, and music can hopefully regain the influence that it used to have in, in the future. Right. Now, uh, back to Shattered Dreams. When you wrote that song, did you know it was going to be a massive hit or somewhat of a hit? Uh, no, I didn't. I think it's very hard for writers to to identify that, although I think they have some kind of deeper knowing. What they tend to need is reassurance. For example, with Shattered Dreams, when I was writing it, it was my dad who came into the to his front room where I was writing the song and asked me what that song was, and I said it was called Shattered Dreams, and he looks at me and he said, you've written your first hit. <laughs> And I needed to hear that. I knew it was good, but I needed that reassurance. And he was the first person to do that. Not many people did with Shattered Dreams, by the way. A lot of people, we had a lot of naysayers. It's always good when you got a big hit that you had a lot of naysayers because it proves it's going to be a big hit. <laughs> um, but but um, people like Clive Davis, as an example, you know, these right. kind of renowned song people, as they're called. These people, you know, I, I don't buy it. I don't buy these. Firstly, if you're an A&R man, you don't need the title song person. You're supposed to be a song person. That's why you're an A&R man. Right. Secondly, it's that, um, secondly, it's that I think the likes of Clive Davis just make up for the insecurity that writers have when they're writing material. They kind of fill that void of adding some security by saying, hey, what you're doing is good. And that's valuable. But I would say that most writers deep down have a pretty good sense of whether something's going to do well or not. They just don't trust themselves enough because we're all, you know, creative, sensitive, and uh, <laughs> and <laughs> racked with insecurity. Right, and if anyone would know if the song would be a hit, it would definitely be your father. I think so. I think so. So when he said that, that was really uh, that was really big for me. Right now, how much of a say does a band or an artist have in which songs get released from like an album? I don't know how it is these days because so much has changed, even though we're still making music. Um, I think that uh, that's uh, really a question for the individual artist. If you're doing a self-release, then you just only have to ask yourself what you want to do. Right. Uh, if, it, if you're going through a label, I think it's much more tightly controlled than it used to be. Uh, in, in the 1980s, you, know, you had a fairly fluid, open relationship with your label unless you got to the point that Prince got to or George Michael, where they obviously came to an, an impasse and, and, you know, had a problem with what was going to be released. I think these days with labels, it's much more locked in. You know, it has to fulfill a certain criteria for a record to be released, and I think that's damaging because that criteria is not a very high criteria. If it was a high one, if the bar was held high... Um, that'd be one thing but I don't think it is so um, 
I think you know that that process is is possibly a little more restricted now for people to sign to a label. Right. Now, when when you left the band at its height, uh, were your bandmates shocked? And B, did you have this kind of in your head for a while that you were thinking about leaving? Um. No, it came on pretty quickly. Actually, I, I was in New York when I decided. I was I was walking around the edge of Central Park and someone came out of the hotel I was staying in and handed me a piece of paper, you know, a, a clerk or something. And, and, and on the paper, it just said a number. It said um, number eight. Now, that's when Shadow Dreams was going up. Right. Because, of course, it ended up being number two. Number two in the U.S. charts, yeah. Yeah, so when I saw number eight, I don't know why, the weirdest feeling, the weird, and the feeling was, you're going to go, you're going to leave. You know, I worked all of my life to reach that point of having a major hit in the U.S., and um, I just had a sense that I was going to move on, which is what I did. So, the, you know, my bandmates at the time were shocked, of course, and, and, and dismayed, um, and needless to say, I didn't speak to them for another 20 years, right. so... That will tell you something. Um, but um, yeah, I mean, I look back on making that decision. A lot, a lot of bands imploded in the eighties. A lot was riding on the success of a band back then because the, because it was like I say, music was so influential. So um, it was a it was a very pressured time. It wasn't a friendly time to be in music. You were always in competition with the other bands and uh, people often ask me, what's it like at the 80s festivals when you see your peers, you know, this many years later? And I can say, well, it's the first time I've spoken to them because back in the day, we (laughs) we barely looked at each other. If you pass each other on the street or in a corridor or something, it was was so competitive. So that's kind of a long winded way of saying um, it was a very different time. It's very hard to apply, you know, today's, factors and circumstances to how it was right and with your soul album i think it was fishing for souls you had like kind of an issue getting it released correct well rain dance was the first album right and um virgin chose a song from it called crown of thorns yes crown of thorns was a uh a book that was kind of inspired by the book the last temptation of christ and there was a film that was made of that book, The Last Temptation. Um, and um, it was very much a book that questioned religion, really, and, the, and the, the song questioned religion. And it was very brave of Virgin to pick it. You know, I had a lot of supporters for having written that song, and um, but there was no way it was going to be a hit. It was too, it was too left field. So um, uh, when it wasn't a hit, it was suggested that I remake the album and add some new material, which is what I did, and that's what became Fishing for Souls. But by the time Fishing for Souls was ready, um, Virgin Records got sold to EMI, which then got sold to Universal. Um, so it, it kind of got lost in, in that whole transition. And uh, fortunately, I got it back, and it's, it's available again, which is wonderful. I'm going to do a, a deluxe edition of Rain Dance, actually, which will feature Fishing for Souls within it, because it was always part of the same album. Yeah. Now, how um, how did re- rejoining the band, reforming the band come about? I wrote a song called Magnetized, which yeah. became the title track of the last Johnny Hex Jazz album. 
And I was really experimenting with delving back into that part of me that wrote the, the original Johnny H. Jazz songs. Um, as I was writing it, I was thinking, you know what, this is crazy. I need to, I need to contact the guys and, you know, just sort of see how they're doing. I think it just opened a door in my mind that I should do that. So I, I spoke to them and me and Mike, who is, it's only me and Mike left and Johnny H. Jazz right. now, but me and Mike left up, uh, met up and, um, you know, it was like we had spoken a week ago. It was incredibly natural, and uh, I didn't play him magnetized for quite a while. We just chatted and talked, and a few weeks went by, and eventually I think I sat down at the piano and played it to him, and uh, and it was lovely. You know, it was, it was really the beginning of, of, of a new time, that particular song. Yeah, the the song and the, the whole album, you know, are, are very fantastic. Uh, when, right after it came out, uh, you got very sick, right? Magnetized actually was released in the UK and Germany only, uh, officially, because, of course, it came out everywhere on the Internet. Um, but in the UK, it was a massive radio hit. It, got, it was the most played record in Britain at one point. Um, and uh, we were all prepared to come out with the, the follow-up. And, and we, was, we had self-released it. So I was kind of... I was acting as the record label i was doing everything whilst mike took care of other stuff right. and uh, i think it made me sick i think it made me ill so i collapsed in london um and it turned out that i had developed a very rare f form of cancer oh, wow. um which could only be dealt with via an operation it wouldn't respond to chemotherapy so they had to catch it early enough unfortunately that is what happened they caught it early enough i'm fine now i recovered fairly quickly that's great but it was uh, it, it just brought everything to a standstill and we, we we lost momentum you know i was i was in hospital then i was recovering and i couldn't do anything for quite a while so um we kind of let magnetized ride and and then just got me back into life performing to get me back into it and um and looking ahead now to new material, so there will be a new projects next year. Oh, great! Now, would you consider like kind of combining your new project and magnetize together to try to get the momentum back? Uh, I, I don't think so. I think the new project needs to be its own thing. I think you know, magnetize for, like I said, for people in the UK and Germany was was known. It's a known album, so I think we just kind of have to let it be. I mean, it will feature. It'd be great to do a greatest hits at some point. Another greatest hits where Magnetize can, can be part of that, the song. Um, but we'll see. We'll see. Magnetize, actually, the album is being released in China. Oh, okay. Uh, yeah, so there's a new video for the, for the, for the single. The single got, we remixed the single. It's more of a dance version. Uh, it's really cool, actually. So who knows? Magnetize may have another lease of life whilst we put out some new material uh, in the West. Right. Yeah, I I certainly hope to uh, hear that as well. Um, now, your album Tomorrow had an interesting take. I, I loved it. A very like kind of jazzified version of Shattered Dreams. Was that something you always wanted to do? I've done several versions of Shattered Dreams, and I think that's always a... Uh, it's a sense of... Uh, there's a saying that an album is never, ever finished. It is merely abandoned. And, and that's true. You don't, you know... It, so Shattered Dreams, as, 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 as lovely a record as it is, I'm very proud of it. I always felt like re-jigging it and re-messing with it. And so I did a, 
an acoustic version which was on the B-side of Crown of Thorns, that first solo single of mine after leaving Johnny Hates Jazz. And then I did this kind of, you know, R&B version on the Tomorrow album, just because I could. Right. Just because it, I, I, I really, it's a, it's a cool song. It's you can, it's easy to do in different forms. Um, and uh, yeah, it kind of, in some strange way, I felt it was, it was appropriate for the Tomorrow album, even though the Tomorrow album was really an environmental album. It was just a, I don't know, just a a track that suddenly seemed to take shape and, and work at the time. Now, it leads me to my next point. You're very, you know, involved with, with the environment. You set up with the, with the Green Tech Awards in, in Germany. How, how important is, I mean, it should be important to everybody. It just doesn't seem like it really is, the environment, environmental awareness for you. Well, it's, um, I mean, it's critical. I think the term environment, which I use all the time, um, is a bit of a misnomer in some ways because it almost seems it makes it sound like the environment so the air quality water quality whatever it is it is somehow outside of us but uh, you know i when i was making tomorrow i was really delving into indigenous philosophies and how um ancient people saw their relationship with the planet as a way to find answers as to you know why we were and why we are doing what we're doing to the only home we have in the universe that we know of, no matter how much people talk about going to Mars. <laughs> this is there's no water there, there's no air there. You know, this is the this is a miracle planet. So I, uh, to me, it's it's intrinsic to who I am. It's not just a question of getting out there with some placards and protesting. Although I think that's really important. It's really about my personal relationship with this planet that, you know, without whom I would not be able to be here. So it's a, it's a fairly deep question. I lived in the U.S. for many years studying Native American philosophy um, and helped me understand much more uh, the relationship between humans and, and the planet. Uh, so, you know, it's uh, – it, it, I'm sorry I'm paraphrasing here because it's quite a – Deep question. All I can say is, is that the, this, the environment is the most important subject that exists now because it's the most fundamental one. Nothing else is going to matter if we destroy our ability to inhabit the earth. Um, you know, it doesn't matter about military spending, it doesn't matter about welfare spending, it doesn't matter about so many aspects of, uh, of how our society is run. That is the fundamental one. Yeah, you're absolutely right. Absolutely. Um, how did coming? Well, let's go back to music. Um, the Mike and the Mechanics uh, album you wrote with Mike Rutherford. How did that come about? An old friend of mine called Brian Rawling, who runs a company called Metrophonic Productions. They've made records for Cher and Enrique Iglesias and uh, lots of people. Very successful. Um, was did a bit of drumming for Johnny Hates Jazz back in the day. Um, many, many years later, I bumped into him, um, and he said, uh, Mike Rutherford is talking about doing a new Mike and Mechanics album. He needs a new writer because his former co-writer, B.A. Robertson, with whom he wrote most of the big Mike and Mechanics heads, um, wasn't going to be part of it anymore. I hadn't been part of it for a couple of albums, actually. 
would I like to give it a go? And I said, yeah, great, you know. But I was a big Michael Mechanics fan in the 8th century. Yeah, me too. Uh, si- oh, cool, Silent Running was one of my favorite records of that decade, actually. Oh, yeah, the whole album is fantastic. <laughs> cool. So next thing I knew, I went over to Mike's place and, uh, you know, we had an afternoon writing. It went very well. And I ended up spending about a year and a half writing, <laughs> writing with him for the new album. And... Um, uh, it came out has done very very well, which I'm happy to to hear. Uh, it was a great process. It was, Mike Rutherford's a lovely guy, lovely guy. For all of his success and all of his influence musically, he's very very down to earth, and and I I found it very illuminating writing with him. Um, so I would gladly do it again. In fact, I think I think I'm going to do it again soon. We we spoke the other day, so I think there is more to do. Um, but yeah. Great experience. Have you guys talked about kind of doing like a, a dual bill, Johnny Hate Jazz and making the mechanics? Mm, we have actually, yeah. We'll see. <laughs> uh, hopefully. Fingers crossed because that'd be fantastic in the U.S. Love, love, yeah. to, love to see that. Now, during, you know, the um, the festivals and stuff like that, I, and I recently spoke to Mike Linup from Level 42, and he mentioned like one of the reasons why they haven't come back to the U.S. It's been, I think, seven, eight years. It's just... The finances is that one of the reasons why that you haven't come to over to the U.S. That's a very honest reason of uh, of uh, Mike to say that, um, because of course that does play into it. You, you know, whenever you do a gig, you know, you someone has to get everyone there and get the equipment there and get the band on the road, and it, and it is actually costly. Any any single show is costly, um, but actually with the U.S., you know what? I always say this to people when they say, you know, people write to me on Facebook saying, when are you going to play Belfast? When are you going to play Moscow? When are you going to play L.A. or whatever? I always say, we'll play there when someone asks us to play there. Right. <laughs> it takes someone in the U.S. to say, I want to bring these guys over. It hasn't happened yet. And I have to be honest, we haven't looked very much. Okay. You know, we've been very much focused on on other things, you know, because I've been involved in, in other projects um mike has two uh mike Masita, that is my, right. my colleague in the band um but i think that's changing now i think that next year we will have some kind of presence in the u.s so uh, uh hopefully that soon we certainly hope so clark thanks for a few minutes today i really appreciate it and good luck thanks very much Nob. Special thanks to Clark for joining us today. Follow Clark on Twitter at Clark Datchler. Follow me on Twitter at TheFirstNoah19. Be sure to like the page we're living my youth on Facebook. Be sure to rate and review the show on iTunes. A special thanks to everyone who listens to the show. I can't do it without you guys. And we'll see you again on the next episode of Reliving My Youth.